Let me just share a little bit about what the plan is for these next uh, few weeks. So starting at Connect Easter two weeks ago, and then last week uh, with Pastor Polzine, we've looked at the Gospel of John, chapter 20, um, and John's account of the events that took place immediately following Jesus' resurrection. Um, So today we're starting a three-week series called The Resurrection Effect, uh, where we're going to be looking at the other three Gospels in order, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, um, examining the last chapter of each of those Gospels as they uh, tell us about the events that happened after Jesus' resurrection, and specifically uh, the effect that the resurrection had on people who experienced it in different ways. Uh, So as we do that, we're going to be breaking up each of these final chapters of the Gospels uh, into different sections and kind of looking at them individually um, today and and the next couple weeks. So uh, we'll go ahead and begin with Matthew chapter 28, if we can get that up on the screen. Thank you very much. Um, So we're going to look at at just the first kind of third of the chapter right now, and it goes like this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord for now. Well, it's always the word of the Lord, but that's all we're reading right now. Um, So before we get into this, um, I want to share a short video with you. Now, this was at least the inspiration for our title for the series, if nothing else. Uh, The show is called The Carbonaro Effect, and if you are not familiar with it, it is a hidden camera magic TV show. Uh, where Michael Carbonaro, who's an illusionist, uh, meets people kind of in everyday life, and he poses as like a worker at Best Buy or a a grocery store attendant or a bank teller or something like that. And then he he performs a magic trick um, in front of these unsuspecting members of the public. Uh, The show's about the reactions of these people that have no idea um, that a trick is being played on them at all. And uh, it's kind kind of interesting. So... Uh, Here's an example of that, where uh, he's posing as a a worker at a health food store. This is is an old denutter that they made in the 70s. What is a denutter? You you guys have uh, peanut allergies? No. no? A lot of people, you know, come here and they have allergies. Mm -hmm. So we have, um, here, actually, well, if you don't have peanut allergies, you should taste this. Here. You want to try it? Yeah. They're homemade chocolate-covered peanuts all in there. Yeah. I'm going to pass. You're going to pass? Yeah, sorry, I'm going to... But here, I'll show you. You know, obviously, there's a little... 
can see the little peanut inside the center of it. So the denutter was a product made in the 70s that the inventor's son uh, had a peanut like allergy. Well, you know, before there were salad spinners, there was the denutter. And a, a salad spinner was actually made off of this design. So what you can do with this, which is great, and for our customers, we use it all the time. I'll put in two big scoops of our uh, chocolate-covered peanuts here. And just like the salad spinner design, spin it. And then you know when it's ready. Pops up. See that? See them all in there? Yeah. Look at so now those guys, those guys are hollow, and the peanuts are separate. What? You're yeah. kidding me. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, it separates them, so now the peanuts... But how, how did it get out of there without... That's... There is sorcery at play. <laughs> yeah. So it gets, the, it gets the nuts right out without breaking through the chocolate. That's not possible. Yeah, the metal base. There's like iron in peanuts, and it, it's something with the way it spins and it gets them through. So what? that's exactly what I thought when he was showing me how to do this. I was like, "Give me a break!" And then I'm like, "Okay, I'm doing it." And now, do you know how many people come in daily and say, "You know, they bring a peanut butter sandwich. Can you put it in the spinner? Put it in the spinner." But like a peanut butter sandwich. Yeah, it'll separate it to just the jelly, the bread, and well, the oil. It's a little. I don't know why people eat it, but it's like having jam bread. You know. Can I like pick one of these up and look at it? Yeah, because sure. I'm just so. How could a peanut have gotten out of there without busting that thing open? I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> I'm questioning everything I know the about life. The physics of it. Yeah, I don't seem. I don't know. <laughs> I gotta. We gotta tell Lionel about this. Does he have an allergy? No, he oh. just he will be fascinated by the you physics speechless. of it. I'm questioning everything. Yeah. I just don't even understand. So there you go. Okay, now come with me back to Matthew 28 if you can. Um, in the first section of Matthew 28 that we read just a few minutes ago, we heard about how the women came to the tomb of Jesus and encountered an angel uh, who told them that Jesus was risen and then gave them a message to share. And then Matthew says this. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Fear and great joy. It's an odd pairing, don't you think? We usually think of the two as almost mutually exclusive. If, you know, if, if you're afraid, it's, it's hard to be joyful. And if you're joyful, you know, it's really kind of hard to be afraid. But sometimes, uh, these two opposites can tend to go hand in hand, uh, like when we encounter something that is just too good to be true, something that's just as wonderful as it is unbelievable. Did you like the reaction of, of the two women from the video? <laughs> At first, they were astonished beyond belief, and, and I think it's fair to say they were pretty scared of what was going on, uh, but they just... They just couldn't help themselves. They were overcome with joy and, and kind of this strange mirth at the same time. One of them said, I'm so confused. I'm questioning everything 
I know about life, but then they couldn't wait to go and tell somebody about it, uh, Lionel in particular, I guess. In our text from Matthew, we also encounter two women who see and hear something far too good to be true. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary see an angel, a sight that is so terrifying that these hardened soldiers from the temple guard fall down as though they're dead. But the angel has a message for the women that brings unbelievable joy to them. He says, he is not here, for he has risen. Truly unbelievable. And yet they immediately believe it and know it to be true, even before they see Jesus for themselves. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. This is the resurrection effect on these two women. And their reaction is actually a little bit more natural than we might have at first assumed because what they have just witnessed is scary cool. Jesus has been risen, has been raised from the dead and that was terrifying and it was awesome. Can you think of an event in your life when your reaction is one of fear and great joy? I can, uh, probably a number of them, two in particular. The first one, uh, it was July 30th, 2013. Uh, my wife and I were in the hospital. Um, I, was, I was feeling fine. Um, but Emily was experiencing moderate amounts of pain um, because she was in labor. Can't say that on Mother's Day. She actually took Ethan to the children's church right now, so I think I'm okay. Uh, but as our son Ethan was born, I was there to witness it all. Uh, I had been warned beforehand uh, that a lot of fathers come in to the, you know, the birth of their first child, all tough, and you know, they're, they think they're going to be just fine. Uh, but when the beautiful, nasty ordeal that is childbirth uh, comes gushing forth, um, they can't handle it, and they faint. So I honestly wasn't too worried about this. I, I thought I'd be fine, and it turns out I was, sort of. Um, all of the, the blood and the other stuff like that didn't really bother me at all, as Ethan entered this world, I, I remember, I'll always remember, I was on Emily's left side, uh, being extremely helpful, as she can attest, I'm sure, and um, I had the deep privilege of being the first human being on this earth to see my son's face, his ornery, goofy, beautiful face. It was, uh, it was a reaction of fear and great joy. I had much the same experience uh, when our daughter Anna was born two years later. Um, I think any of you parents out there can, can probably relate to that. The birth of your child, especially maybe the first one, is, is an experience of fear and great joy. On the one hand, there can't be anything more wonderful that you could ever imagine. On the other hand, This child is yours, and that means that you are responsible for caring for him, for providing for all of his needs, for introducing him to Jesus, for raising him to be a good citizen who knows the difference between right and wrong. Fear. Great joy. Has the resurrection of Jesus had that effect on you? Does the sheer magnitude of what happened that Sunday morning sometimes make you a little uneasy? And fill you with holy fear. I hope so. But I also hope and pray that it fills you with an inexpressible sense of awe and wonder and joy. 
And I pray that God leads you then to go and, and tell others what he has done. So we continue right where we left off in Matthew 28 and encounter something completely different. While they, that is the, the two women, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Word of the Lord. So the women who encountered the angelic message of Jesus' resurrection and then encountered the risen Jesus himself were filled with fear, along with their great joy. Shockingly, the chief priests, those who should have been the most afraid at what had happened, if not overjoyed at all, demonstrate no evidence of fear whatsoever, but persist in their unbelief even after they know Christ has been raised from the dead. On the one hand, this is understandable, because if they were to admit to themselves that, that the truth was that Jesus was alive, it meant that the guy that they had made their mortal enemy and had actually killed, and not only done that, but mocked him all along the way, is alive again. Now, this should be a very scary thing for them. Like, like when you shoot a bear... And it only makes it angrier, and now he might be coming after you. The chief priest should have been terrified. But their hardened hearts made them so unfeeling that they could still willfully disbelieve the unbelievable but undeniable truth reported to them by the guards. Just as they had corruptly bribed Judas to betray Jesus, now they shell out more cash from the temple treasury to bribe the soldiers to make up a story about why Jesus' dead body no longer occupies its unusually heavily guarded tomb. It's like a team who won't concede that they've lost, even when all the results are in and the outcome of the game is final and will never change. Um, I read last week about how the Oklahoma State football team got their rings uh, from the Alamo Bowl, which they won last year. And engraved on the rings, you can see on the left-hand side there, uh, they engraved their record on the year, 11-2 um, and two on the season. The only problem is, they were 10-3, and three, uh, because they lost to Central Michigan, as you might remember, at the beginning of the year. But it shouldn't have happened. Uh, the refs made a mistake and awarded the Chippewas a, an untimed down at the end of the game, uh, which they used to win uh, by, by scoring the game-winning touchdown. It shouldn't have happened... But it did. OSU knew it, but they refused to acknowledge it. Jesus had died. The chief priests had made doubly, triply sure of that. The resurrection shouldn't have happened. But it did. The chief priests knew it. Yet they refused to acknowledge it. This wasn't the first time that those in power had a problem with Jesus, knew exactly who he was and what he had done, and yet refused 
to believe. King Herod, just weeks or maybe months after the birth of Jesus, had the Magi come to visit him and and tell him about a child who had been born, the king of the Jews. And so Herod assembles the chief priest and and the scribes, takes counsel just like the chief priest would later, and, and asks them, where is the Christ to be born? And then promptly makes plans to kill him. Herod knew that Jesus was the Christ, yet he refused to believe in him. The chief priest knew that Jesus had risen from the dead, but nevertheless, the effect of the resurrection on them was disbelief. But they didn't stop there. They took it upon themselves to make sure that no one would believe in what they knew to be true. They made up a false story, funded their deception with temple money, and convinced many people to join them in their unbelief. Do you know anyone who willfully disbelieves in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Someone who knows better, but still won't believe, who seems to have made it their mission in life to tear people away from Jesus. You know, I've been seeing a a lot of Bill Nye in the news again lately. He has a new show on Netflix, and the more I I hear from that guy, the, the more I'm convinced that he is willfully suppressing and mocking what he knows to be true in his head and and maybe even in his heart. The resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus has the only rightful claim on all of our lives, and we human beings have never really tended to like that. So on the one hand, this is nothing new. On the other hand, we always have to be on guard against the deceptions of Satan and his messengers because they will stop at nothing to have us deny the life-saving truth that the eyewitnesses have been passing down from the very beginning. Christ is risen from the dead, and and no matter what lies his enemies may concoct, no matter how much the truth may be contradicted or denied, that truth and its power in your life for the forgiveness of your sins is in the end utterly undeniable. So let's live like that. Let's devote ourselves to stamping out the deception of those who refuse to believe the truth of Jesus' victory over death. Let's serve. Let's love. Let's proclaim the life found in Jesus in everything that we do. And we'll go ahead now and uh, conclude with the end of Matthew chapter 28. And it says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, this is a very uh, well-known passage. The last few verses are what we usually call the Great Commission, as Jesus sends out his disciples to make disciples of all nations. Uh, But today, I'd like to focus on on what happens right before uh, Jesus' famous words. Our series is called The Resurrection Effect, so I want to hone in on on the effect that this had on Jesus' disciples and their reaction when they saw him in Galilee. Did you notice their reaction? It says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, the worship of Jesus here by the disciples is described using the same Greek word 
uh, that's used to describe the worship of the Magi when they came to the the boy king and, and bowed down and offered him their gifts. Worship ought to be a natural and really immediate response whenever we encounter Christ, especially whenever the realization of his resurrection hits us, whenever and however it takes effect. When the women first saw Jesus earlier on uh, in the chapter, now we didn't touch on this, but they actually grabbed his feet and they worshipped him. And the response of the disciples here in Galilee, seeing the risen Jesus again at the end of the chapter, is also worship. And yet, just as fear and great joy made an odd pairing at the beginning of this chapter, here we have a strange combination as well as we see when we continue reading verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Worship and doubt. <laughs> What's going on here? This is, this is a bit troubling to say the least, isn't it? Of all people, <laughs> the disciples should not be doubting, especially now. They've already seen Jesus earlier, risen and alive. Why are they doubting? There have been different theories on exactly what this passage is saying. Some have suggested that it couldn't possibly have been the 11 apostles uh, who were spoken of as doubting here. Uh, But the problem with that theory is that there's no mention made of anybody else here on this mountain, and it's reading way too much into the text. Others have suggested, as most of our translations do, uh, that only some of the disciples doubted. Still others say that the best way to read the Greek phrase here is to understand that all of the disciples doubted, even in the midst of their worship. I'm not sure what the best answer is, but it seems pretty clear to me that at least some, if not all, of the 11 disciples of Jesus, having seen Jesus alive more than once after his resurrection, are still having a tough time coming to terms with what took place in that tomb. Can you relate to that? You've come here today to worship. What doubts have you brought with you? Two weeks ago, we had this massive celebration here in this place. And I pray that you were moved by that. It's, it's impossible for me to understand how, how you can't be moved when we're talking about the, the greatest event in human history. And the disciples were certainly moved by seeing the risen Jesus. But doubt lingered on for at least some of them. And maybe it has for you too. You know, to struggle a bit is only natural when confronted with unique or or impossible circumstances like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You know, we know that that a salad spinner really can't denut anything, but we've just witnessed it, and we don't know what to do with that. You know, maybe you think that something God has done in your life is too good to be true, and you're waiting for the other shoe to drop because you've been burned before. Or you're afraid that the sin in your past is just too big for it to be completely overcome and destroyed as God has promised it is. Or some of that deception we were talking about just a few minutes ago just won't let you go. But let me ask you this. What does Jesus do with his worshiping, doubting disciples? Does he scold them? Does he berate them? Does he cast them away? 
No. He sends them. Your doubts, your struggles are not hidden from Jesus. But what does he do with you? What's he doing right now? He's sending you. He doesn't begrudge you your struggles, but he invites you to overcome them by trusting in him and by telling others what you've seen here. We may waver at times, but his victory over death never will. His promise is forever true, and he is with us always to the end of the age. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.